0: Well, as you have turned into Philippians uh, chapter 1, most of you know we're in a continuing study in the book of Philippians called Joy Story. And we're just going verse by verse through the book of Philippians, taking a look at it. And this morning we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 in just a moment. Um, But before I do, I just—I think most of you know uh, that my wife and I, we have a total of eight kids. And when I say that, there's times where I'll, I'll say that to someone who doesn't doesn't know us. I'll say that and usually it's greeted with kind of a nervous bit of laughter. <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of a, is this a joke? Is this for real? But we do. We seriously, we have eight kids and we've been blessed to have uh, four of our kids come into our lives by natural birth and we've had, been blessed to have four of our kids come into our lives by way of international adoption through Ukraine, but they're all our kids and just very blessed with all of them. And I, I share this story only with permission from uh, my one son, who was a part of this. But so what I'd ask you: is I'm, I'm leaving the name out, so don't go hunt them down later and ask who it was. <laughs> just give them uh, that grace. But when you when you move into a different country, there's just naturally some adjustments that take place. And here in the United States, we have a number of uh, conveniences that I think we can take for granted, things that we just just assume we'll always have and there were some adjustments in that that when they came home there were some adjustments to that and one of those adjustments was the microwave, using a microwave for a number of, of quick meals and easy meals. And when it first came, we're working on some of the, the dietary things, and now that adjustment's been made. But when it first came, there was just trying to find some things that, that worked, that kind of served as a bridge from what it was used to to what we have here. And one of the, the food sources that we use, if you can call it a food source, is, was ramen noodles. Um, Rainbow noodles are very similar to something that you could get in Ukraine, a very quick, easy meal, very similar to to the way they function here. But in Ukraine, the way the the rainbow noodles were made, and I don't even believe that was the name that was used there, um, but the way this noodle packet was made is that you would steam up water. and Probably some of you make it this way. You'd steam up water, put the hard cube of noodles in a bowl of water, pour the hot water over it, and then they'd cover it over with uh, a plate just to let the steam settle, let the noodles really uh, cook, or however that would be, and a few minutes later, come back, and they would eat it. So that was the process they were normally accustomed to, and that's that's still done from time to time in our house, but we introduced them to the microwave, and the the speed that that brings into cooking along those kind of meals, and so we'd throw the water in there, throw the noodles in there, throw them in a bowl, cook them in the microwave a couple minutes, have a quick meal. And so, after several um, successful meals, of, again, if you can call a meal of ramen noodles a successful meal, after several successful meals of ramen noodles being cooked, we ran into a problem. One of my sons had, had put the noodles in, put it in the microwave, it hit start. And as it was cooking and as it was going, um, smoke started pouring out and set off the fire alarm in the house. And so we ran over, opened the microwave, got the fire alarm to stop, and I dealt with the smoke. And discovered that he would put in put the block of noodles into the bowl but forgot to add the water. And so you ended up with this smoldering kind of almost like a charcoal briquette type thing that was there. We had to set it out, let it cool, return back to so it wouldn't like scorch away through the bottom of the trash can and onto the floor and then finally throw it away and uh, it happened a couple of times. But after we, we dealt with a crisis of the moment, I remember, I remember chuckling to myself and saying to my son, I'm like, help me understand this. How do you forget half the ingredients in a two-ingredient meal? <laughs> but we had a good laugh about it. We still have a good laugh about it um, today. But when I think about what we're getting ready to read in the book of Philippians with the Apostle Paul... What we can't forget is what Paul is writing to these believers in Philippi is he's writing to them what he may consider his last letter to them, his last real communication to them. He is on trial and being held as a prisoner for a capital offense. And he's writing to a group of people that he cares about dearly and he loves dearly. And as he's writing this letter to them, he's giving them some of his, he's looking at us perhaps final final instructions for this final moment that he can speak into the lives and he can share things with them and so as he 's looking and he's writing to them, he begins to assess this, this final moment of writing to these people, perhaps the final bit of instruction and so he begins to share with them he, he looks at every circumstance, he looks at every situation he finds himself in, and he always looks at it from the standpoint of how can I, how can I represent Christ well and so he 's sharing that with those believers in Philippi as we really see through all of his writings through any of the churches to any of the believers, any of the leaders is how to consistently represent Christ well. And so he's, as he's writing, and something we see all through the, the letter to the Philippian church... His three ingredients that he gives them, three necessary ingredients that he consistently points out that they need to make sure are a part of their life to be able to consistently represent Christ. Well, in fact, one of the ways that he'll talk about it is, is, is he'll say it's as if you're wearing Christ and putting on Christ, much like you put on your clothes this morning. you're putting on Christ and you're carrying Christ wherever you go. And so he gives three ingredients. So that they can represent Christ well. And those three ingredients, and we'll look at them in detail in just a moment. The first one is consistency, the second one is cooperation, and the third one is confidence. And we'll see these surface again and again and again through this letter. But let's look at this together. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 27. It says, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So these three things, consistency, cooperation, and confidence. And Let's just talk about them for a little bit this morning and so that we can each walk out with some application of this. The first one that he tells them is consistency. Look again in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, just the first part. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Paul uses an interesting word here that we wouldn't just quickly catch as we read this, but he, when he says, "conduct," uses the word to conduct yourselves, talking about their conduct as an individual. Many times in the New Testament, when it's talking about the lifestyle we live and the conduct we live by, it'll use a certain word that's talking about kind of our day-to-day activities, our day-to-day choices, how we go about living our lives, just our conduct of the day. But there's two times in the entire New Testament that a word is written, a word is used that speaks to a different type of conduct. This is one of the places that it's, it's used here. And to help understand why Paul chose this word, you have to understand the background of the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi was what many considered in that day to be, a, they'd call it even a miniature Rome. It was, it was established on what at one point when it was established was the outer reaches of the Roman Empire, and it became a Roman colony. Many times these, these colonies that were established on the outer reaches of the Roman Empire were established, and then one of the ways that it was maintained is that as soldiers retired from the Roman army, they would then retire to these outer reaches, the outer places that they were to be, and that's where they would begin to live their lives. But then they would carry with them a conduct or a lifestyle that was ingrained in that culture. One of the ways that these colonies became recognized as Roman colonies is because of the culture that they created and they, they fostered in these these colonies and in these cities. They were known for being very loyal, being very strict in their loyalties to Rome. They would dress, if you, were to, if you were a Roman citizen and you were to step into the city of Philippi, you would notice that everyone, even though they're living in a foreign environment, that they would be dressed just as if you were in the city of Rome. They would behave with the religious practices as if you were in the city of Rome. They would protect the original language so that all of the languages from the region around didn't infiltrate the city. And they continued to speak in the language of Rome, that they had the customs and the culture and the trade of Rome. As if, but it's on these outer reaches away from, from the central part. Part of Rome itself. And so what we see is that when, when Paul uses this word to these, to these believers in Philippi, he uses this word that speaks to that type of loyalty. That loyalty to a different culture, to a different world. They were living as, as aliens of Rome in an alien environment. And he identifies that to these Philippian believers so that when he writes this, they immediately know what he's talking about. But he's not talking about their behavior merely as a Roman citizen and with the culture and the attire and the dress of Rome. But he says this, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He says, just as you have before you came to Christ, you have lived in the city of Philippi, but you've carried the culture of Rome with you in Philippi, now because you have become a citizen of heaven. In fact, if you look in uh, Philippians 3.20, if you can put that on the screen, Philippians 3.20, he says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. That he identifies, he says, just as you have lived as citizens of Rome in an alien environment, now as you have given your life to Christ, I expect you to remember to live as citizens of heaven in an earthly environment. He helps them immediately see that the way they've been living sets a pattern for how they're to live as followers of Christ in a fallen world. So what he's telling them, he says, remember, however you lived, carry the culture of heaven with you. Carry the culture of heaven in your home, in your worship, in your workplace, in in the city, wherever you go, in your relationships, carry the culture of heaven. He goes on to tell them that when we look all throughout the New Testament writings, both in the letter to the Philippians as well as others, he talks about living consistently with the culture of heaven in their lives and their thinking. He says, make sure to align your thinking with it. Make sure to align your speech with it. Make sure to align your attire, your all, all of the things. That the entire lifestyle is to be consistent with our relationship with Christ and being citizens of heaven. Look at a couple of different ways that he says this. I want you to see this, a few different ones. If you could go ahead and, and put up, uh, I believe it's Philippians chapter 4. Philippians 4. one he says, As prisoners for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He says, live in a way that, that represents the calling that you've received represent the lifestyle that you have in Jesus Christ. Go ahead, if you could put up Colossians chapter 1. He says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. But he says, live a life worthy of the Lord. Again, speaking to recognizing that just because they were living in the city of Philippi, or in this case, living in the city of Colossa, or for us today, living in the city of State College, the State College area, that we're to live a life worthy of the Lord. In other words, it doesn't matter where you find yourself living, that we're to live a life that reveals that our, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ. Amen. That is to be consistent with who he is and who he's continually making us to be. In first Peter um, chapter one, uh the apostle Peter he's writhing and he says in first Peter chapter one, I believe it's verse fourteen or fifteen, he says to live as foreigners in this world live as foreigners, uh, and live for heaven. It's continually keeping our lifestyle consistent with who Christ has called us to be, realizing that this life, as long as we may have here, is temporary. Whether it be 80 years, 90 years, 40 years, 20 years, it's temporary. And so, this life, we have to re- continue to live with a heavenly mindset and represent the culture of heaven in our lives wherever we're living. It's continually representing Him in all things. And I think it would be important just to continue to remember that it's not just a matter of living differently. In fact, I encourage you to remember if you're if you're new to the faith, or perhaps you're here with a friend this morning. When it comes to what I'm talking about this morning, it's never a, it's never a will a, it's never about living differently so that we go to heaven. It's never about that. The Bible makes it very clear. It's never about living differently so that we can go to heaven, but it's that we live differently because we are going to heaven. Two very different things. We live differently because Jesus is in us. We don't live differently to get Jesus in us, but we live differently because he's in us that we're living differently to reveal the one who's inside of us. We've talked about the Holy Spirit and how God places the Holy Spirit in us as a deposit in our salvation. And so we're to live a life, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who's holy, we're to live a life that's consistent with the one who's living inside of us. So I think I would just simply ask you a point that we can assess our lives with this morning is to examine your life, examine your thoughts, examine your speech, examine your attire, examine your relationships. Is Are you, are you living out a consistent Christian life as part of being those, it's part of those necessary ingredients to be able to stand for Christ and give adequate witness to Christ. That it's not a compartmentalized lifestyle, it's a complete lifestyle, completely sin- surrendered to Jesus in all things, representing Him in all things and in all moments. And it really begins, it's not just a matter of leaving here today and saying, well, I'm just gonna go do this, 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 and this, and have a list of things that we need to do. But in Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 1 and 2, it tells us that it begins with our mindset. But it says that, that we don't become conformed to the world around us, but be changed by the renewing of our minds. It's a renewing of our minds. I was just talking with a friend this past week uh, about repentance and about the importance of the lifestyle of repentance. And one of the things we have to remember is that when it comes to repentance, repentance speaks about a changing of our mind. It's a changing of our mind. And it's a changing of our mind in that we agree with God about how he sees things. We agree with God. Repentance is a matter of agreeing with God on how he sees your life, agreeing with God on how he sees your sin, agreeing with God on how he sees the way this world is, agreeing with God on on the steps that you need to make to be able to live consistently with him. So it begins with a changing of our minds. That's why the Bible so much talks about the mindset of the believer. That they have the mindset of Christ within us, but it's so that we can consistently live to reflect Christ in all things. And that so, I believe it sounds good, it sounds fair, it sounds applicable, but he gives us one more qualification in this in verse 27A. Kind he gives us the he gives us the win of this is to happen. By way of when are we supposed to be living a consistent Christian life. Look at verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whatever happens in all things. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. It says whatever happens, that means that whoever you're around, it doesn't matter what they're doing to you, that you're called to live a life that is consistent with the gospel. It doesn't matter what your work environment is. It doesn't matter what the culture of the others in the workplace say. I've heard had individuals say, well, I kind of talk like this because you just have to be tough. You have to do this in the workplace. But according to Scripture, it tells me whatever happens, I need to live a life that's consistent with who Jesus is living inside of me. That's both inside and out. That's both with my mouth, with my thoughts, with my actions, with my speech, with my behavior. And so the, it really clarifies that in all things, in all moments, and in every place. And I have found in my own life, and I've found from just life to be true, that usually it takes the difficult piece, people in life, the difficult circumstances, the temptations in life that will often bring forward in my life the areas that I need the grace of God to continue to work in. It's those hard people, those hard situations, those hard things that bring forward the parts of my life that need more of His grace. And because those highlight those parts of my life, that is why he continues to to say, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. That there is no person that's an exception to this in your life. There's no temptation that's an exception to this in your life. There's no relationship that's an exception to this in your life. Whatever happens, conduct your life consistent with who Jesus is inside of you and who he's making you to be. It's a choice to let Jesus shine in every circumstance, in every moment, in every place, in every challenge, in everything that you find yourself in. And whether or not you realize it, that in our lives we are continually sending off and giving a message of Jesus to those who are around us. Whether or not we realize it, we're continually giving a witness to someone and to something. Look at this poem. It's an anonymous poem. But I want you to read this. Look at this. It says, You are writing a gospel a chapter a day by the words that you do and the words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithful or true, just what is the gospel according to you. That is a sobering reminder that your life is always giving witness to something. So let's make sure that we're living in a consistent way that is giving witness to Jesus in all things, in all moments, and in all places. I think the second thing from Philippians that we can remember is not only consistency, the importance of consistency, but the second ingredient Paul tells them that they need to be able to continually give witness to Christ is not just consistency, but is cooperation. Look in verse 27a, uh, verse 27 again. It says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. But he says that he says to stand firm in one spirit, striving together for the gospel. The word he uses for striving together is more of a, a sports type term, and it speaks of a team. In our day, we would think of rugby or we would think of football, but it, te- t- it speaks of a team that's working together towards a common goal, and as they work together, there's a striving, there's a fighting, there's a, there's a common uh, strain that they have together, but they, they're committed to staying together and advancing together towards a common purpose. But what he's speaking of is he's speaking of unity. He speaks of, he says, that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together, that you stand firm in one spirit, one gospel, one mind, some translations would say. But it's speaking of of the importance of unity. And what we have to remember in the Bible is that many times when it speaks to something or a picture that we're given, that it gives us a picture of something in the natural. And many times there's a benefit, there's a blessing with what's being described as being in the natural. For example, walking in unity with others. That there is a a great natural blessing for that in the natural realm, being in unity with the people sitting across from you, being uh, unified and of one mind with those around you. But what we can't forget is that most often in scripture that it's not just a, a natural benefit, but many times what we see in the natural gives us a picture of the supernatural. It gives us a picture of what takes place in the supernatural. So to get a picture of why unity is so important and cooperation with others is so important in the Bible, because it, you'll find it all throughout. Jesus prays for it in John 17. He prays that his disciples would be unified and walk in unity because they give a clear picture of him to the world. So we see that it's, very, it's a priority to God. It's a priority uh, to, in the writing to the New Testament. It's a priority in the life of a believer, but I want you to see the supernatural dimension and the the spiritual reasons why. So turn with me over to Psalm chapter 133. I want to share with you very quickly, keeping in mind the focus is cooperation, and and that's part of that consistent Christian lifestyle representing Jesus in our world. So Psalm chapter 133, I just want to read it all, three, three verses. It says, How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It's as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. It says it speaks to this this picture that we're given here in, in Psalm 133 is a picture of something that took place in the Old Testament. Something that took place in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the Old Testament stories, Moses was an individual God raised up to lead the nation of Israel out of slavery. And Moses had a brother named Aaron, and Aaron became the high priest or the primary priest for the nation of Israel. The the high priest was someone who would represent the people to God, represent God to the people. And Aaron, the the position of high priest became a picture, and the New Testament tells us it's a picture of Jesus and what he does for us. But what's being described here is what takes place with Aaron when he's being anointed for that high priestly position. And as it's describing here, we we can walk away with a few different things about the significance of unity and specifically the things that take place in the spiritual realm when we choose to walk in unity with one another. So it's not just for the sake of getting along, for the sake of getting along, but understanding the supernatural, the spiritual dimension and importance of it. So first thing that it tells us, and it's found in verse 3, it says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. It says, for there the Lord bestows his blessing. What's the topic? Not so much the anointing of Aaron, but the topic in Psalm 133 is that God's people live together in unity. That's in verse one. So the first thing that we can recognize about the importance of unity and that cooperation with, with one another is the first thing to keep in mind is that through unity, God's blessing is bestowed. Another way to think about it is that when we walk in unity, that it's attractive to God's favor. That when you look in the Bible, you'll see that consistently Jesus talks about in the Beatitudes, the things that are attractive to God's favor, the lifestyle that's attractive to his favor, that's attractive to his blessing. And what it tells us here is that when we choose to walk in unity with one another, when we choose to abide in unity with one another, that it's attractive to God's favor, that He says that's where he bestows his blessing. That's where his grace rests. Secondly, not only is a, is a unity an avenue for God's blessing, but secondly, it tells us that the, the, uh, uh, when the, we walk in unity, the anointing of the Holy Spirit continues to flow. Psalm 133 talks about the anointing process of, of, of Aaron and it says, it describes unity. It says it's like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. And it just describes that anointing process that takes place. And many times here, we'll, we'll pray for individuals who, um, who are sick. The Bible tells us in James chapter three to call the elders of the church to anoint with oil. And we have little jars of oil that we have up here. Um, you'll see them up here up from time to time on the sides. They're just a little bitty jar of oil that we use for anointing oil. And most often when, when someone, comes to pray for them, uh, when someone comes to be prayed with, we'll take a little dab of the oil on our finger and we'll touch it to their head. And really what it is, I'll tell people, the oil itself, there's nothing magical or, or supernatural itself in the oil, but that it's a step of obedience. The Bible tells us that we anoint with oil and pray, we pray for people, so it's a step of obedience. And whenever we take a step of obedience, it positions us to receive from God. The Bible also tells us that the oil is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. But just that, that picture that I'm telling you, we take a little jar, and we usually will dab some on the head. I've seen people make a, the form of a cross or different things. Um, that's not the process that's being described when, when Aaron's being anointed. Just know that. That if you have, if you have kind of out of the church culture, when you read into the, new, the Old Testament what takes place, Aaron did not get a little dab of oil on his forehead and then go off to serve. They took a flask of oil, and this would take place when kings were anointed in the Old Testament, when different priests were anointed. They would take a large flask of oil, and it was poured over their head so that it was running down, it was drenching down, and it would stain their garments. And it would stain the garments, and the oil stains would stay in the garments so people could see the visible anointing that had been upon those individuals as they were anointed. The second thing to keep in mind is that when this anointing oil, you look in the Old Testament, the oil that's used for the anointing was not merely like a, a Crisco oil or a vegetable oil, just that consistency. Rather, it, it's really the work of a fine perfumer. If you look at it in, in the Old Testament, what it's described as, is it's a very fragrant oil. So when the anointing oil, when the anointing took place over Aaron or the kings or the high priests, then not only would there be just this dousing of oil over them and they'd be stained with oil, but then there would just be this release of fragrance. That if you were around them, you would get this release of fragrance that, that has just been released because there's been an anointing that's taken place. And so it tells us that when, it, when God's people, when we choose to walk in unity among one another and we protect unity as a congregation, that not only is that attractive to God's favor, but it says that unity is, is the avenue with, with, through which the Holy Spirit flows, and as he flows, according to the way the Old Testament describes the anointing oil, that, that there, there's a releasing, there's a fragrance that goes out from that. In Second Corinthians, it tells us that our lives are a fragrance of Jesus to those around us. And so it speaks to the, 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 how the Holy Spirit flows as we walk in unity among one another. And then the third thing that we can understand when it comes to the importance of unity is that not only is the Holy, does the Holy Spirit flow, but Christ is continually, continually lifted up. I already mentioned it in John 17, but in John 17, Jesus said he prayed specifically that his followers would walk in unity, he said, so that people would see him, so that Christ is continually lifted up. So if those are the three benefits that take place, the three things supernaturally that happen when we walk in unity, number one, God's blessing or his favor is bestowed, number two, the anointing of the Holy Spirit continues to flow, number three, Jesus is lifted up. What do you think happens when we don't protect unity and we choose to not walk in it? just the opposite. If we choose to to disregard unity, we choose to break unity, we do something that disrupts unity. Number one, the blessing of God is is, is withdrawn. Number two, the anointing of the Holy Spirit does not flow freely. And number three, Christ doesn't lift it up. That's why the Bible tells us so much about unity and the importance of unity and the importance of walking in unity. The significance of have, of being committed in our lives to walking in unity with one another. There's a number of verses in the Bible that will talk about the importance of unity. But before we look at those, um, I've had the individuals will tell me from time to time they'll say, "Well, you know, I don't, I don't really have to be a Christian to go to church." And I'll tell them, you're, you're exactly right. You don't have to be a Christian to go to church. Now, I've told them before, and I'm sure I've said this here, that you don't have to be a Christian to go to church. Neither does a fish have to stay in water to be a fish. It just has a much higher survival rate when it stays in the water. And I really believe that's true for Christians as well. That we don't have, You don't have to be in a church family to, to be a Christian. However... You cannot fulfill the biblical command to walk in unity with other believers if you're not in a consistent, consistently a part of a body of Christ. So you choose to walk in an area of disobedience, and there's other verses towards that, but you choose to walk in an area of disobedience because you can't practice the unity that Jesus prayed for among his followers if we're not consistently in connection and around other believers, I believe another thing to keep in mind when it comes to unity is that the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit lives in me. He, he lives in you. That he lives in every individual who's placed their faith in Christ. And I need the work of the Holy Spirit that he's doing in you to complete his work in me. And you need the work the Holy Spirit's in doing in my life to complete the work he's doing in your life. That is it's just continually working and refining and, and shaping out our lives as we continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work. I mean, think about it. We talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Galatians 5 tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Just stop with those three, love, joy, and peace. Can you really say that you're a peaceful person or a loving person if you're never in the context that actually that lets you flesh that out? You can't. It's, it's hypothetical, it's a theory, until you're living in, in context in a relationship that forces you to choose to live it out. That's what life and community, and church community is. That's why Jesus talks about the importance of unity. I will, when I look at the, the unity the Bible describes and tells us that I encourage individuals to remember the miracle of the church is not that we never have disagreements and the miracle of the church is not that we ever don't have uh, conflict. The miracle of the church is that we know how to deal with disagreement and we know how to deal with conflict without disrupting unity. That's the miracle of the church, not that we never have it. People, I've had people tell me, well, you know, church is frustrating. I get frustrated with the people that are there and, and people tell me, well, you know, I, go to, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites there and I tell them, you know, the, the moment I walk in, a hypocrites walked in. I mean, that's just life. That's life as an individual that we're continually allowing the Holy Spirit to work in us, recognizing things and saying, God, I need you to work in me. I need you to work in me. I'm continually putting it forward for you to to work in. But we have to remember the church is going to be messy because it's full of people who need grace, people who continually need grace and need to be changed and need to be transformed. And so the best avenue that you and I can be a part of how God is working in our lives is be committed. Be committed to, to letting him work in your life. Be committed to working in cooperation with one another, even in the spite of differences and recognizing that he's always working. I've had different times in my life when it comes to church and, and life that I've had to be reminded or remind myself that the reason I love the church is not that, it's, that it lacks mess. The reason I love the church is because of who it belongs to. The Bible tells us the church, Jesus describes the church as his bride describes it as his bride, the one he longs for and loves and gives himself for. And so I choose to love the church not because of lack of mess, not because of lack of conflict, but I choose to love the church because of who who she belongs to. And she belongs to him. And so we're committed to walking in cooperation, walking in unity. And the Bible tells us this, that we have a responsibility to that. Let me give you a couple of verses, and then we'll move to the final point. Can you put up, uh, I believe it's uh, Ephesians chapter 4? Ephesians 4.3 says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. It says, choose to exhaust yourself to protect the unity uh, of walking in relationship with one another. And is there another one? You can put up Romans 12.18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. It says that there's going to be times where there's going to be conflict. That just, you may not be able to find resolution to, but what Romans 12 says, it says, as far as it depends on you, exhaust yourself in doing what it takes to bring peace. But it's choosing to walk in cooperation in all things. And then the final thing, when you, if you look back in Philippians chapter 1, the final thing that we have, again, out of, uh, out of Philippians chapter 1, verses 28, or 27 and 28, is that the final thing is confidence. Look in verse 27 again. It says then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way that by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God that there's, that that we're to have confidence that serving Christ involves confidence really is spoken of it in context to understanding there's going to be rejection, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be hardship that comes with following Christ. And, and he's just encouraging them. He says, don't, don't shy away because it's hard. In fact, the, the word that he, he uses in, in verse 27, 28, he says, striving together uh, as one for the faith with the gospel. The word that he uses to, for strive is, is used to describe a horse in battle. And he says, just as the horse in battle is trained not to pull away, the moment that the tension's there, the moment that there's, there's the things that would strike fear. He says, as followers of Jesus Christ, you must be committed to the course that's been laid before you. Walk with confidence in the course that God has set before you to follow and know that if you're following Jesus correctly, there's going to be discord and there's going to be rejection. There's, you're not going to fit in the world in which we live. That's what Paul is telling them. He's reminding them. He says, expect it. So walk with confidence. And he gives Four things on account of Christ to remember when it comes to this. And just give them to you quickly. When it comes to understanding rejection that we can live with, the first one is to remember that it's expected. That it's to be expected, not to be surprised. In First in, uh, John, it tells us, First John 4, it says, don't be surprised when hardship comes on you because of your faith with Christ. Don't be surprised at that. And Paul tells Timothy, a young pastor in First Timothy 4, he says, those who live a godly life should expect to suffer. That we, it's to be expected, that rejection from the world is to be expected. In fact, I would, I would challenge you to look at your life, and if in your life there's not some measure of discord with the world around you and your values and, and your choices and a number of things, if there's not some level of discord with the world around you from who you, how you live your life, then you really need to examine if you're following Christ correctly, because Jesus said in John 15, he says, he says, if you're following me correctly, which is called abiding or remaining in him, continually finding life in him, he says, if you're following me correctly, then you will be at discord with the world around you. I remember reading one uh, author, and I can't even remember who it was, but he, he wrote and he said, he said the measure of your discord with the world around you is a direct reflection of your accord with Christ the measure of the discord that you have with the world around you is a direct reflection of your accord with Christ. And so if there is no conflict with your values, there's no conflict with how you raise your family, no conflict with your entertainment choices, no conflict with everything that makes up your life, if there is no conflict with that, with the way the world does, then you should look at your life and examine, am I following Christ correctly? Because Jesus said it's to be expected if we're following him correctly. Secondly, that when it, when it comes to rejection and resistance, not only is it to be expected, but secondly, it's a sign. In verse 20, 28, he says that it's a sign to those who are persecuting you, that it's a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but, but that you'll be saved. That it's a sign. In other words, he says your life gives witness. Your life gives testimony. How you endure under suffering rejection for Christ, how you endure, ultimately gives witness to Christ. In the, the founding of the church in Philippi is a perfect example of that. If you look at Acts 16, the, the one who was overseeing Paul's beating, the, the prisoner, in fact, the, the jailer, in fact, he may have very well offered some of the lash marks on Paul's back. And he's observing this whole time, and all throughout this suffering that Paul is getting because of Jesus, he is worshiping, and he's thanking God. And then even after there's an, there's an earthquake, and, and the jailer is about to kill himself, Paul speaks out and speaks out to, on behalf of him and says, don't, don't do it. He, continue, he offers love and grace to someone who's just wronged him. That it all becomes a, a message and a testimony that ultimately the jailer becomes a part of the church and is receiving this letter that Paul has written. So it's a reminder that as you, as you live for Christ and you experience rejection for him, that it's a reminder that it really your life gives witness. Number three, it's a privilege. To, to be united with Christ and to suffer rejection for Christ is a privilege. It's a privilege. Look at verse 29 again. It says, "For it has not only been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer with him. It's a privilege to be united with Christ in his sufferings. We just sang the song before I came up called Great Things, and it talks about the, the priv- privilege of being united in oneness with, oneness with Christ in spite of our hardship. It's in spite of what we're going through. Have you ever considered that the worship you can offer in your hardship is a type of worship that you can't offer in heaven? See, so we worship, we'll have, we'll have all sorts of time and opportunity to worship in heaven, but the worship that we choose to release in hardship, the worship we choose to release in pain, the worship we choose to release in rejection, has, I believe has a different type of value on it because it's a type of worship we won't ever be able to offer in heaven. Because in heaven there is no suffering, there is no pain, there is no rejection. So there's a value, there's a premium on the worship that I believe that we can choose to offer. In fact, I believe when it comes to hard spaces and, and, and hard times in our life, specifically in rejection to Christ and our standing for Christ, is that not only is it a privilege, but I believe it's a sacred space. It's a sacred space because those are moments we choose to lean onto Jesus more. We choose to lean into him more and discover a new understanding of the comfort and the grace and the peace and the hope that he brings. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says that in my weakness, I found strength. Because there's an intimacy with Jesus that we find that we won't find elsewhere. And then the last thing I believe when it comes to uh, confidence and hardship, that hardship really not only is it a, a sign of uh, to be expected, it's a sign that it's a privilege. But lastly, it's a reminder that we're not alone. It's a reminder that you're not standing alone. The Christian life is done in context of community, and the enemy wants you to think that you're alone. He wants you to think that you're the only one going through what you're going through, that you're the only one suffering this, you're the only one doing that. You think of Elijah in 2 Kings when he's on on, uh, the mountain, and he is being persecuted because he's a follower of God, and there's this point where he says, he says, God, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, you're not. You're not alone. And it's a reminder to you and me that when we face hardship, that it's a reminder we're not alone, that we have others that we stand with. And because we have others we stand with and the strength that we have together and the work of the Holy Spirit within our relationships and in our lives, that it's a reminder to continually keep our eyes set to Jesus Jesus at all times so that he can consistently be lifted up within our lives. I'm going to invite the men and women to slip to the back and begin to ready themselves for communion this morning. And I would like to conclude our time together by receiving communion.